Thank you, Bridge Kids teachers and leaders, for serving us and serving our kids. The rest of us will be in Luke chapter 20 because we're going to see what will people think. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through uh, verses 1 through 19. Now, my grandmother uh, liked to save things. Maybe this is where I got some of my desire to save things. And she also liked to save things that were historically significant. And one of those things is she saved newspapers. I like to save, I love to see old vintage newspapers. I remember when she showed me a newspaper dated May 8, 1915. The headlines read, Steamer Lusitania Torpedoed and Sunk Off the Irish Coast. Now this event would be a key factor in leading the U.S. into participating in World War I. The Lusitania was an ocean liner carrying 1,959 passengers that was torpedoed by a German submarine. 1,198 passengers perished with the ship. One of the survivors, survivors Charles Laureate, uh, gave an account, and it's recorded in uh, the book entitled Lusitania, an Epic Tragedy. And here's what the author said. As the ship was sinking... And as Laureate looked around to see who needed life jackets, he noticed that among the crowds now pouring on the deck, nearly everyone who passed by him that was wearing a life jacket had it on incorrectly. In his panic, one man had thrust one arm through an armhole and his head through the other. Others rushed past wearing them upside down. No one had read the neat little signs around the ship, telling people how to put them on. Laureate tried to help, but some thought he was trying to take their life jackets from them, and they fled in terror. Later, the writer says, dead and drowning people were dotting the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jackets on the wrong way up so that their heads were pushed underwater. You see, people were given the right information, but they didn't pay any attention to it. Now, I might be sympathetic in a crisis like that, but the information was correct, and the information was available. Some people could have been saved if they would have followed the instructions. You know, the same thing is true today. God has given instructions on how to have a relationship with him and how we can be saved from the penalty of sin and we don't pay attention to it sometimes. I remember growing up in our house, we had a Bible on the coffee table or it was always out in a prominent place and nobody in the house read it. Nobody. Kind of had to dust it off periodically. Um, in the first century, the nation Israel had given plenty of instructions about what God desired, about having a relationship with Him, and how to live, and how to honor Him with their lives. But a lot of people in the first century were ignoring it. They had information about God sending His Son, and what that would be like, and they ignored it. So this morning we come to Luke chapter 20, 
And we're going to start with verses 1 through 8. The authority of Jesus is challenged. The authority of Jesus is challenged. Verse 1 is the setting, but let us just, let me remind you kind of where we are, how we got here. So um, last week was Easter. We did Luke 24. Now we're going backwards to Luke 20. Now that messes with my mind, but we did it because we hit Palm Sunday two weeks ago. Then we hit Easter. Now we're going to go back. And so we're back into the last week of Jesus's life, sometimes called the Holy Week. And here's, remember what happened on Sunday? On Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and it was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And people were so excited, they thought the kingdom of God was arriving right on the scene. The king was present, and they laid down palm branches, and they laid down their outer garments on the road and kind of carpeted the road and had a big parade and went into Jerusalem. And they were praising him as if he were God. That's a problem for some people. And then, not only that, that was Sunday. On Monday, he went into the temple and he drove out the merchants and the money changers. And he said, my house must be a house of prayer. And that brings us to our passage right now. The authority of Jesus' challenge, and we have the setting. Verse 1. Uh, let me just read the, the, all eight verses. So one day probably Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel of the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, for men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither am I going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Okay. So um, Jesus is in the temple courts. This is a very large area. And uh, Jews and Gentiles are allowed to be there. Um, and he is teaching. The amazing thing is teaching the good news. He's announcing the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is present. And, and he's coming to bring freedom. And uh, he's gonna, it's, it's good for the poor. And, there's, and healing has happened. And people know these stories. And they've heard about Jesus. And he's proclaimed the year of the, uh, the Sabbath year. I didn't put it in my notes. What's the Sabbath year? Of the 50th year. Jubilee. Got it. Thank you. I need that. I don't need amens. I just need people what I'm supposed to say next. <laughs> and so here he is. And, you know, it's very crowded. Probably a really large group is as close as people could get. And there's also a very prominent group, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders. This is an interesting group. These probably represent the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. Now, why is this interesting? Because they see Jesus sort of as an enemy. Now, the Sanhedrin, made up of the high priests. See, the high priests are present. This is a big deal. They are the most important people in Jerusalem. Not only that, there are two of them. There's only supposed to be one. There's Annas 
and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the active ruler, um, high priest, and Annas was the former high priest. It's, it's the, it, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And so they're there. Now, the priests in the first century, uh, the, the, the Sadducees, those in the Sanhedrin, were liberal theologically. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. The Pharisees, who are in this group as well, are the conservatives. They do believe in miracles, and they do believe in angels. So these aren't like best friend people. And then there's the elders, and they're like the lay people. They're the heads of their families or their tribes. They're like the highest regarded in each tribe of Israel. And so they are a part of this group, this ruling class, the Sanhedrin. And they're there because they are against Jesus. They come together just to begin to mount up evidence against Jesus. And so the question, tell us by what authority you're doing anything. Jesus, who do you think you are? Where did you get your authority? I mean, uh, we are the authorities here. We are the authorities in Jerusalem. We are the authorities in Israel. We are the authorities of this temple. The temple is the power base of the Sanhedrin. They own it. At least they think they do. Because this is their biggest stream of income. When they had all of those merchants in there selling sacrifices and the money exchange from around the Roman Empire, there was big profit that all came to the house of the high priest. So this is a big deal. Jesus, where'd you get your authority? You didn't get it from us. So they think they've got Jesus nailed. Now, what things do, do they refer to? Well, how about riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and having people worship you and you let them? That's blasphemy. And how about going into the temple? Who gave you authority to go into the temple and get rid of our friends? You know? We are the ones who can say who can be in the temple. And so they're challenging Jesus. By what authority did Jesus do these things? Verses 3 and 4, the counter question. I love Jesus, how he operates here. I will also ask you a question. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it for heaven, from heaven, or of human origin? Now, just a reminder that he's referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is already dead. Herod had his head cut off, if you remember. Now, John the Baptist is not the Apostle John. Sometimes people just, they hear John, they get confused about who John is. This is John the Baptist, and he had a very specific role that was outlined in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and 4. John's role was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He went outside of Jerusalem, and he preached, and he didn't look like a religious guy. He didn't look like clergy at all. He just was, he looked like a prophet who was very simple. He went outside of the system, out into the wilderness, and he called people to turn to God, to turn from their sin to God. And they came by the droves and listened. And he and his, his disciples baptized probably thousands of people who were turning to God. And his role was to create a people ready for Jesus when he came. He was to prepare the way for the Lord. And he did. And he got killed for standing up for truth. 
He wasn't worried about what people would think. Um, John is the one who baptized Jesus. John is the one who said he wasn't worthy to tie Jesus' sandals. John called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John's authority was from heaven. And that's a way to say from God, from heaven. That's where John's authority was. And Jesus is asking this question because, guys, if you understood John's authority when he baptized people and called people to turn back to God, you would understand he was talking about me. You would get that. You would see the Old Testament scriptures that point to me. You would understand who that I am. Verses 5 and 6, the group dialogue, so they don't know how to answer, so let's do a little group think here. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, uh, he's going to trick us. He's going to say, why didn't you believe him in if he's from heaven? We can't say that. But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. That won't be good because they are persuaded John was a prophet. We can't answer either way because of what people will think. And so the outcome, verses 7 and 8, um, so they answered, we don't know where it was from. They thought, this is pretty good. We're not going to commit here, and uh, we're going to see what he does. Verse 8, Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things because it's already been proven. I don't have to say anymore. One of the interesting things that you see here is these guys aren't serious. They aren't seeking really where Jesus got his authority. They have ulterior motives. Now, if they, had, if they were serious and they were searching for truth, Jesus would have given them more light to see with. But they just want to move toward darkness, and Jesus is just going to leave them there because they, their hearts aren't open. That's a good principle. When people care and they, they're honest and they want to seek God, God will give them more truth. When people's hearts are hardened, God doesn't have to do much. He just lets them stay there. So, um, just the significance is uh, Jesus' answer is enough, his question. Because if they could put together who John was and they could identify John's authority, why all these people were going out to hear this prophet of God, you know, they should have known it happened hundreds of times in the Old Testament. See, the prophets were given to the nation Israel because. God gave people a law on how to live, and, and when, when peop, God's people went outside of the lines, God sent a prophet to remind them and say, guys, you got to get back. You got to get back to here. You're way over here. You got to come back. You got to turn back to God. We call it repentance. That's what God used prophets for. They were not always popular. That's what John was. So, by way of application here, by whose authority are you living your life? Jesus was asking you, by where did he get his authority? Where do you get your authority? By whose authority are you living your life? By whose authority are you making your choices? 
Um, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been delegated an authority that comes from God. In Ephesians chapter 1, the scripture says that when Jesus was uh, crucified, that he was buried and that um, he rose again. God's power, it's the, the, what Ephesians 1 talks about is God raising Jesus from the dead by his power. And then he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God far above with authority over all for the sake of the church. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and the scripture says that authority is given to us because we are in Christ and with Christ in the heavenlies, in our position, and he has delegated authority to us. For what purpose? To make disciples of all nations, to have spiritual resources, to make a huge spiritual impact on the kingdom of darkness. Um, Jesus Christ is Lord. And how do I approach that? Am I okay? Do I want to be under his authority? Or would I rather, you know, like do my own thing and sort of let me call the shots and I'll be the authority? And we get that choice all the time. How to live? Do we want to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and he's the master and I'm the servant? And when you really get that, I don't have to decide every day. Am I going to do this thing right or when we understand that Jesus is Lord and he's the master, I just need to know what he wants me to do next. Not whether it's a, it's a yes or no, it's what does he want. That's what servants do. They follow the leadership of their master. And we, we have a great master who wants our very best. And are you living under his authority? Another way to say, is he Lord of your life? Okay, verses 9 through 19, we come to the second part, the authority of Jesus disclosed. The authority of Jesus disclosed. Now, this is a parable, and I want to read part of it. Uh, he, that is Jesus, verse 9, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but... The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, uh, but that one also had been beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over, groupthink, this is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, will the, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. So that's the story. It's about a man who plants a vineyard. He farms it out to some renters. The owner sends some servants, and they are mistreated. The son is killed. The problem is, what should the owner do? Now for the story behind the story. 8th century B.C., Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is a love song, a love song to God. 
I will sing, this is Isaiah, 8th century, for the one I love as a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines, gave it the very best. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Next slide. Now the dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judea judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Next slide. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. The vineyard refers to the nation of Israel. Prophecy to God's people in the Old Testament. And that wasn't a good story, by the way. So we come to the interpretation of our parable, verses 9 through 16. And we look at the man who planted the vineyard. And the man who planted the vineyard in Jesus' story represents God the Father who gave the stewardship to his people, the nation Israel. And they were to care for this nation, um, the vineyard. Uh, The vineyard is the nation, and they are responsible to produce fruit for God in a way that honors him. Um, Look at Isaiah 5, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty. So this is that Isaiah 5 passage about the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the nation Israel. The farmers are the religious leaders, the caretakers of the nation. They are to lead the people in the path of righteousness and instruct them uh, about what God has given them uh, in the Old Testament. They were made a na- into a nation. They were brought in, you know, they were carried out of, uh, out of Egypt and they were given this land and um, God made them into, he, he conquered the land for them and he, he gave them this land and he gave them this temple so that they could have a relationship with him. The fruit in the story was the grapes. And God was looking for honor and sacrifice from his people, not just dead animals. Sacrifice. He was looking for thanks. He was looking for giving back a portion to him. Uh, the, The grapes were produce of the land. This was an agrarian economy, and they didn't deal in much cash. They dealed in produce and animals, and God wanted them to set aside a portion for him, and there wasn't much fruit. And the servants who were beaten are the prophets of the Old Testament. The nation killed many of their own prophets, just like they did John the Baptist. For example, in 1 Kings 18, 
Elijah reports Jezebel had killed many prophets. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. 1 Kings 22, Micaiah the prophet was beaten and put in prison. 2 Kings uh, 6, the king orders Elijah's death. 2 Chronicles 24, Zechariah was stoned to death. 2 Chronicles 36, God's prophets were mocked on many occasions. Jeremiah 37, uh, Jeremiah was beaten and thrown in prison. Nehemiah 9 says, Israel had killed many of their prophets. These were the servants that the owner of the land had sent for his vineyard. And what about the son whom the owner loved, the son whom I love? When the owner sent his son, he referred to whom the father loves, the son the father loves, and it's Jesus. And we are reminded of Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when all the people were baptized. This is John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And he was praying, and heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the Father speaking about Jesus, his Son. And Jesus is telling this story so that the people standing there understand. And you're going to see they do exactly understand. The implications, verses 17 through 19. First, the question Jesus directly look directly at them and ask, then what is this meaning of which it is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected. So he's asking them, they are the scholars, they know the Old Testament. This is not a trick question. What does it mean? That the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone? The religious leaders are the builders who rejected the cornerstone. They are to be building their nation. They are now given the most important piece of information for the history of Israel that God has given his son and he is there and he is in Jerusalem and he is the king of the kingdom of God and they have that information now. And that should be delightful news but they're going to reject him. And the interesting thing, he is going to become the cornerstone in another temple. Jesus Christ will die and be buried and he will raise again and he will will ascend into heaven and he will become the cornerstone of a new temple. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 And the church will be built on the cornerstone of Jesus and on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and spiritually and metaphorically will grow up into the temple of God. And the old temple is going to be done. And now there's going to be a new temple, a new community. And then in verse 18... Jesus speaks of the judgment to come. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. 
The stone is going to be a building block for the church, but it's going to be a judgment stone for those who fall, who those who trip over it. Um, if they trip over it, they are going to be smashed to pieces like a clay pot. And if the stone falls on it, they are going to be crushed like a clay pot. Uh, and Jesus is making an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45 about the rock who crushes the other uh, empires. Verses 19, uh, the, the deflection of truth. This is what people do when they don't like the truth. They deflect it. The teachers of the law, verse 19, and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. They had had enough of Jesus. Who does he think he is speaking to them in this way? They wanted to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They got it. But they were afraid of the people. What will people think? Do you care about what people think? Do you care about what people think of your commitment to Jesus Christ? Does what people think impact how you live during the week? What will people think? If you stand up for truth or point people to Jesus or tell what God has done for you, is there a place for that? Or do you shy away because of what people will think. So, in an ap application here, in the story, God has been looking for fruit from his vineyard. God was looking for fruit. God is still looking for people to bear fruit for him. What is your life producing for Christ? Because he's still looking for people in this new community, whether we're going to bear fruit. John uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, well-known passage. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will even be more fruitful. That suggests that sometimes that some difficult things in life some hard things that come our way uh, can be used for more fruit. And sometimes God prunes us. Sometimes he, he trims off things that aren't needed for the sake of his good and uh, so that we would even be more fruitful for him. And then John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So if you're a Christ follower, you, you're a branch and you, you should be connected to the vine because that's where we get life and nourishment and health and strength for every day. If you remain in me, if you stay close, if you walk with me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, much fruit. And apart from me, forget it. You can do nothing. It's important that we walk with Christ. Fruit is the outgrowth, the outgrowth of what is in us. It comes in our thoughts and in our attitudes and in our actions. When, when God is working in us and when we're growing as Christ followers, it affects our, our, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. Matthew 13, verse 23 
Jesus told another parable, and he said, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word of God and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So the idea of good soil, meaning good hearts, people who receive God's word and embrace it and want to be healthy. And the point of this parable is reproduction. And, you know, it's not having more babies. We got, that's going really well here. <laughs> this is about spiritual reproduction. It's about making disciples of all nations. And that's what he's given us as a church to do. Now, not everybody is going to be a gifted evangelist, but the church together as a body, the way we live, has a powerful impact on our community. And together we can make disciples and have an impact 60 or 30 or 100 times. Multiplication, spiritual multiplication. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That is, when the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives, when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, He's going to produce character qualities like love, sacrificial love toward other people, joy at the center of our being, uh, peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace in our circumstances. Even our circumstances can be terrible. Forbearance, the ability to put up with people who are difficult, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithful to God, faithful to His Word gentleness and self-control, self-discipline, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those are, that's a fruitful life. How would you say you're doing in those areas? Are you seeing God develop those in you? There are many ways to bear fruit for God. Fruit is primarily the results of obedience to Christ. One of those is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And this is a bearing fruit in a different way. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So in, in the parable, God was looking for fruit, and he was looking for uh, a portion of what he had provided for them, and they'd been blessed with, and giving it back was, was a way to honor him. And that represented cash in the first century. And, and we have this command to, to decide in our heart what to give. And the cool thing here, God isn't trying to guilt people into giving. God is looking for the cheerful heart. That's what pleases him. That's fruit bearing. When we give out of a cheerful heart, that's the work of God in our lives. When I grew up in the 1950s, there was a very popular TV show on Sunday nights called Candid Camera. Black and white. And some of you remember it. Some of you uh, have seen it on reruns. And it's designed to show how funny people are when they don't think anybody is watching. In one uh, famous episode, maybe you've seen this, entitled Face the Rear... 
It's um, a little video clip of a man coming into uh, an elevator. He gets on, he's the first one, and he, he turns around, he presses his key, and he stands there. And then all of a sudden, four guys come on together, and they all stand and face the back of the elevator. And the door remains open, and he just kind of kind of stands there, and, he, and you know, he's getting kind of nervous because they're all looking back there. Did he do something wrong? And then all of a sudden, the fifth guy comes on, and he faces the back of the elevator also. And the guy just, and then finally, he just goes like this. And they showed that over and over. It didn't make any difference if it was a man or a woman. Every time, people turned around because of what people were thinking. Does that impact you on your decisions to follow Christ all day long, every day? Let's stand together and pray. Our Father, I thank you for uh, Jesus' story and the opportunity that he has given and the opportunity that he gave uh, in the first century. And you were so gracious and so patient. Father, it's my prayer that we would be people who can live under Jesus' authority with joy to represent him well. Yes, we know what people think sometimes, but may we be willing to follow, even if it goes against what people think. Father, may we be um, fruitful as we walk with you, as we grow. May our lives just continue to reflect Jesus more and more. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for grace. May we not be stuck But may, may we be honest people and not live a covered-up Christianity, but just honest before you and honest before each other so that we may reflect Jesus well. In his name I pray, amen.